Hi, this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We are a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 16. And we are going to, to see the exact thing that the choir was singing about. It's taken from this parable. And if you're new today, we're in the midst of a series on the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And I call this series, Where Are You in This Story? Because the parables that Jesus tells are stories, and they're stories that you and I are, are in. In, in each one of the parables, in each one of the, the, the stories, um, we, we, see, we see ourselves, we see our, our role um, somewhere in, in the story. And so let's look today at really one of the most sobering stories that Jesus told. It's traditionally called the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I've entitled this message, Right Now Counts Forever, because what we're going to see is that the decisions that we make in this life have eternal ramifications. Let's see what Jesus says. Luke chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading at verse 19. I want to invite you to follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before um, this sobering passage of Scripture today, and Lord, we're, we're confronted with, with eternity. 
in this text, we're, we're confronted with the fact that, that every human being that we've ever laid eyes on is an immortal soul that will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know the Savior. I pray for anyone who is, is trusting in themselves, trusting in their own good works, trusting in their church membership, trusting in anything other than Christ. Father, I pray that today they would, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that they would repent, that they would come to rest exclusively in the finished work of Jesus for them, that they would cling to the cross today and abandon anything else that they may be clinging to. Father, I pray for myself and every other believer in this room today. Father, I pray that you would impress upon us the urgency of, of what we do in this life. That, Father, you would give us compassion for, uh, for lost people. Father, I pray that, as Jonathan Edwards said, that you would stamp eternity on our eyeballs that we would understand that we've never laid eyes on another person who's not going to live forever, and that we're not held responsible for their response to the gospel, but we are certainly held responsible to share the gospel with every person. And so, Father, we pray that you would just impress these things upon us today. We pray that you would remind us of what is central, that the gospel is central, that you would use your table, the Lord's table, to remind us of the centrality of the gospel today and that your spirit would work now in our hearts through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was on a a trip and I was serving as a a trustee for a a mission board and um, on this particular trip, I was visiting Christian workers throughout northern Africa and the Middle East. And on one particular afternoon, I found myself in the, in the Middle Atlas Mountains in North Africa, in a very poor village, without electricity, without running water. And some of our, there were some Christian workers there that were teaching these little kids in school that would otherwise have no access to, to education. And we had just walked out of the classroom, and I looked down the hill, and there was the village well, uh, kind of a dirty well, and, and there was a little boy about the age of my youngest daughter, and he was trudging up the hill, and he had j- jugs of, of, of this well water in his hand. His little arms were just weighed down with these two jugs of water as he, as he, as he walked up the hill, and for some reason I just snapped a picture of him. The very next day, we flew to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, one of the wealthiest places on earth. And I found myself in a, a, a shopping mall, the most opulent mall that I've ever seen. And inside this mall was an indoor ski slope. Yeah, it's 120 degrees outside, and, and inside these, these people, women in all black burkas from head to toe were, were skiing down the slopes. It was really a bizarre, uh, kind of a disturbing sight. 
in, in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the whole place was just crazy wealthy. The, the people who live there, only about 10 or 15 percent are from the United Arab Emirates. The, most of the people there are from places like India, poor people in South Asia that have kind of been imported in that kind of serve these uh, super wealthy people all, all day. And, and, and the, the, the Emiratis just kind of walk around these these incredibly over-the-top shopping malls and just just buying stuff. And, and I looked up, and, and there was a placard that was hanging down from the ceiling that sort of advertised what this mall experience was all about. And it was a, it was a photo of an Emirati man and his wife strolling through the mall, and their hands are loaded down with stuff that they've purchased at the mall, just bags uh, with, with their arms just full of it, hanging down. And I took a picture of that, and when I got home from the trip, I put those two photos side by side of the little boy carrying the jugs of water and the poor village and the, the people carrying the stuff in the mall, and I put them side by side just to remind myself of the extremes in the world. Well, Jesus here is talking about extremes, isn't he, in this particular story. Extreme wealth, extreme poverty. But actually, this parable is not about economics. It's about something far, far deeper. Let's meet the characters in this story. Rich man, poor man. Verse 19, we meet the first Character. Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, the language that Jesus uses is, it's, it's over the top language. He's describing someone who is totally self-indulgent. Someone once said that a man who's wrapped up in himself makes for a small package. Well, if that's the case, then this guy was a very small package indeed because Jesus is painting a picture here in verse 9 of just a a total narcissist. This guy is completely wrapped up in himself. Jesus says that he was clothed in purple. Purple Purple was a statement color in that day and in that culture. And, and this guy wanted his clothes to make a statement. He, he, he was strutting around like a, like a peacock. And then, G, and then we see the humor of Jesus come out again, as we've seen time and time again in these parables. Jesus says that he was dressed in fine linen. Now, the people in the first century who heard Jesus tell this knew that the word that he used for fine linen meant that he was referring to a, a fine Egyptian cotton that was used for undergarments. So Jesus is essentially saying here, he even had fancy underwear. And then Jesus says that he he feasted sumptuously every day. Every meal was five star. And the fact that he did this every day indicates something else about him, and that is he, he, he had blown off the Sabbath. He had no room for God whatsoever in his life. He's totally independent. He's totally self-sufficient, self-reliant. Why do I need God 
That's the picture here. Well, just a few yards away from where this guy feeds his face and prances around in his fancy underwear, we meet another character. Verses 20 and 21, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What, what, what do we see here about Lazarus? He's obviously not only poor, but, but crippled, disabled, right? And we know that because he has to be laid at the gate of this man. He, can't, he obviously can't walk. And so people in that day, in that culture, that were disabled like this, were, they were helpless, they, they could not work. And so it was very common for their friends to, to place them in proximity to a wealthy person's house in the hopes that the person might share with them out of their excess. But in this case, they've chosen the wrong house. Because it's clear that this man never gives him anything. Despite the fact that later on in the parable, it's obvious he even knows Lazarus' name. He has to practically step over him to get into his house. But he never shares. Lazarus would have been content with just a scraps from his table. But he doesn't even share those. And then Jesus talks about the fact that his body was covered with these oozing sores and that the dogs were licking his sores. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, when, when I always read this story, I thought that probably the, the dogs were adding insult to injury, that the dogs were part of the torment of, of Lazarus. That's probably not the case. Kenneth Bailey, in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, who, who uh, spent most of his life in the Middle East, a New Testament scholar, Bailey points out that uh, in ancient times, that a lot of times dogs were actually, they were trained to lick people with sores and abrasions because, yeah, this is true, dog saliva has antibiotic <laughs> Properties. Don't recommend that the next time you skin your knee. Not going to be doing that. But, but probably the dogs were not tormenting Lazarus. They were probably his friends and, and seeking to soothe him. And the, and the fact that they were licking him, dogs lick out of what? Affection, right? They sense something in Lazarus. They sense a gentleness and a kindness. It, because... Lazarus, even though he has nothing in the eyes of the world, he actually has everything. Because it's clear from the parable as we go on, Lazarus has a relationship with God. He knows God. It's a total contrast. The first man is totally, totally independent. Lazarus is totally dependent. He has, he has nothing. No one except for God. And because of that, there's a power. In his life, there's a kindness and a gentleness and a power that just sort of radiates from him. William Lane Craig, in his book On Guard, tells about a friend named Tom who was visiting a nursing home when he met a woman named Mabel. And listen to what he says. 
As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, Here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. Tom and Mabel became friends over the next few years, and Tom began to realize that he was no longer helping Mabel, but she was helping him. He began to take notes on what she said. After a stressful week, Tom went to Mabel and asked her, Mabel, what do you think about as you lie here all day? She replied, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me to think about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. And this is what she said. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm, I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without Him I would fall. When I am sad, to Him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, He makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know, I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Why? Because, as you've heard me say before, 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. And we're going to see that play out as this story develops. Because next we see a role reversal taking place, don't we? If you're taking notes, that's number two. Role reversal. Verse 22. Jesus says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. At last, Lazarus' painful earthly pilgrimage comes to an end. No one notices on this earth. He just dies as one of those poor, anonymous people. No one on earth notices, but heaven notices. The Bible says in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. God notices. And there's a party that is thrown in heaven. There's a feast, a forever feast that is thrown in heaven. And Jesus says that, that the very next moment after the end of his physical life, and the very next moment that Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's side, Abraham, the, the father of the faith, the father of the Jewish people, and he's placed at Abraham's side. Some translations say Abraham's bosom. And what it's talking about is, is the place just to the right side of Abraham. The same word is used in John 13.23 to describe where John is at the Last Supper. He's, he's at Jesus' side, Jesus' bosom, to the right side of Jesus. In the first century, when they, when they ate, they didn't sit up in chairs like we do. They would recline around low tables, and they would recline on pillows. And so they would rest their left elbow on a pillow um, and, and eat with their right hand. And so the place uh, to, uh, to the right... Of Jesus, uh, where John was, John would have been, he would have been leaning back right into like the chest of Jesus. That was, that was a place of honor, a place of intimacy. And, and that's where Lazarus is taken. He's sitting just to the right of Abraham at the, in this feast in heaven. All of the the pain of his life is, is dread, it's, swallowed, it's swallowed up. It's, 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 it's vanquished. If you were to take all of the, all of the pain of Lazarus' earthly pilgrimage and, and put it all together, it would be nothing compared to the glory that he's now experiencing. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All of the sufferings of this life just seem like a moment in time. Because now Lazarus is forever in the presence of, of, of God. He has been embraced by the Lord. He is at Abraham's side and it is a forever feast. 
That's reality for him. One second after death. What about the other man? What about the man who had everything but Jesus? Jesus tells, tells us about him in verses 22 and, and following. Let's pick it up at the latter part of verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You know, when I hear people say, ah, you know, I'm not much into, the, into the, that God of the Old Testament, that, that God of judgment and, and hell, I'm, I'm, into the, I'm into the teachings of Jesus. I know immediately they've never read the Bible. They've never read the Gospels. Because Jesus taught about hell far more than anyone else. And he does so out of love to warn people, to warn the living. If your neighbor's house is on fire and they're asleep, are you a more loving neighbor if you warn them or if you don't warn them? Jesus, Jesus warned people about hell because he loved them. And, and here in these verses, he, Jesus really just pulls the lid off of hell, doesn't he? You can practically smell the smoke. What can we learn here about hell? First of all, hell is a real place. It's real. Second, hell is a tormented place. Look at the language that Jesus uses here. Verse 23, he talks about torment. Verse 24, he talks about anguish. Verse 25, again, he talks about anguish. Verse 28, he talks about it as a place of, of torment. Revelation describes it as a, a lake of fire. People would drown if they could, but they can't. And that's because it's eternal. It's eternal. When Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, He paints a direct contrast between heaven as a place of everlasting life and hell as a place of everlasting punishment. And it's become popular in some circles to, to try to water this down and, and, and to teach that, that people, that, that lost people, people without Christ when they die, that they're just annihilated, that they just, they just cease to exist. That goes against everything Jesus is teaching here. And, and against a, a plethora of other texts that, that teach that just as heaven is eternal, hell is eternal. And Revelation 20 says that 
It goes on forever, and, and tons of other texts teach that. It's a place of eternal punishment, just as heaven is a place of, of eternal life. We see also from this that, that, that hell is a, is a conscious place, that those who are in hell are conscious of their surroundings, just as those in heaven are conscious of their surroundings. By the way, sometimes I'm asked if there will be recognition of saved loved ones in heaven. Well, Abraham is very recognizable here, isn't he? There will be recognition of saved loved ones in heaven. But hell is a conscious place. This man is very conscious of where he is. And hell is an inescapable place. Once you're there, there's no getting out. What does Jesus say here? In verse 26, he says, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Hell is a real place. It's a tormented place. It's an eternal place. It's a conscious place. It's an inescapable place. But listen, hell is an avoidable place. Hell is an avoidable place place. And he tells us how to avoid it. The third thing that we see here is real repentance. Real repentance. Verses 27 through 30. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses And the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Notice here that the man in hell understands why he is in hell. And he understands why his brothers are headed to hell. And it's not because he's not in hell because he he had money. He's in hell because he never repented. And his brothers are headed to hell because they have not repented. That's the issue. That's the issue. To repent means to turn. It means to change your mind. You change your mind about your sin. You come to see your sin the way that God sees sin. You come to see your sin as horrible. Your sin is not okay to you anymore. It's no longer okay to, 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 to run your own life. And you become aware of that. You become conscious of that. And you turn from that. And you turn from sin to a Savior. And you come to rest in His finished work for you. You're no longer trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in your good works. You're not trusting that your name is on a church roll. You're trusting in a Savior. You come to rest in what Christ has done for you on the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And it means that you quit clinging clinging to your own self-salvation project, and you cling to Jesus. You trust in Him. You cling to the cross. 
It's all about a Savior. You come to rely on the finished work of Jesus and Him alone. That's what saves. That's the issue. That's real repentance. Notice that twice he implores Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers, and twice Abraham refuses. Pick it up in verse 27 again. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Which someone is going to do. Just days from this, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as he speaks these words where he's going to to die and he's going to rise from the dead. The resurrection of Christ stands right there in the middle of history. More evidence for the resurrection of Christ than for historical events that we take for granted all the time. And yet, most do not repent. And Abraham knows that this guy's brother brothers would not repent. He essentially says to him, what you're asking me to do would not work. It would not work. Because their hearts are hard. They've blown off Moses and the prophets. Even if someone would rise from the dead, they would blow that off too. You, you hear people say, talk about God sending people to hell. The Bible says we, we send ourselves to hell. Jesus says in John 3, He says, For God so loved the world, so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Three words. Believe. Believe. If you're not a Christian, believe. Trust. Trust. Trust in what Christ has done. Quit trusting in yourself. Quit trusting in your works. Quit trusting in your religiosity. Trust in Christ. Trust in the Savior. Trust in what He's done for you. It's not about your performance. It's about the performance of Jesus for you upon the cross. Trust in that. Turn to Him. Repent and believe today. And if you are a Christian, tell Tell! Christian friends, should not this parable communicate the urgency of evangelism and missions? As Spurgeon said, if someone's going to go to hell, let them have to jump over our bodies to get there. May they only go into hell with us clinging to their ankles to prevent it. We're not held responsible for the response of people to the gospel. 
But we are held responsible to share the good news with them. And we have blood on our hands. If we don't tell. Third, remember. Remember. Remember the centrality of the gospel. That's what the Lord's table is all about. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We, we have a tendency to, we have a tendency to, to, to get out and, and to, and to, onto the periphery instead of keeping the main thing, the, the main thing in, in our, in our Christian lives. We all, we all have this tendency to, 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 to wander away from what is central. And we have this tendency in, in churches as well to, 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 to get away from what is central. Listen, the gospel is central. The gospel is central. It must be right in the center of our lives, the center of our church. Paul said, I'm, I'm de- I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the Lord's Supper has a way. Jesus gave us this to, re- to help us keep the gospel at the central. Central, right, in the, right at the center. This reminds us, helps us to remember what we're all about as a church family. Let's pray together as we prepare to take part in it. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for the reminder in the story of the eternal things that are at stake in our lives that right now really does count forever. Father, I pray for anyone here who entered this room today unsaved. Father, I pray that if they haven't already done so in the course of this message, that right now they would turn to Jesus and trust Him. Welcome Him into their life as Savior and Lord. Father, I pray that You would really impress upon us as believers the the urgency of, of the task that you've given us to, to tell good news, to be heralds of the gospel. Now, Father, as we prepare to take part in the supper that you ordained, we pray that this would be a, a time of self-examination and reflection. We pray that there would be no known, unconfessed sin in our lives that we would be humbled before you, that we would be um, reminded of our own inadequacy, our own sinfulness, and the perfection of the Savior who lived the perfect life that we could never live and who, who died an atoning death upon the cross for us, whose blood was shed, whose body was broken, that we might have life abundant, and life everlasting. Lord, may these moments uh, be used by the Holy Spirit to to humble us and to deepen our love for Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen. listening to this service at First Baptist Church. We hope you've been strengthened in your faith. We want to encourage you to visit our website at fbcsuffolk.org for more information about the church and about following Jesus. God bless you today.